Well, the process of change. You know, we looked at ingredients of discipleship counseling, uh, six of those major ingredients of involvement and hope, uh, gathering information, and, and working through those uh, last night and this morning. This is now once a person is a believer and now you're going to try to get into their life and help them to grow and change specifically, uh, we're now looking at some key elements within the change process. Uh, The ones that we're going to be looking at, if you remember the the diagram of up and down a lifelong cycle uh, of these elements that we're going to mention right now, sin and guilt every day. Every single day of a Christian's life on earth, sin and guilt, repentance and faith, confession, forgiveness and covering, replacement, putting off and putting on from the heart out, and mind renewal. Some very key aspects. Obviously, there are books being sold, popular books today, that you can change a lot faster. I was looking at the, some of these titles Uh, You can have a new kid by Friday. (laughs) Dr. Kevin Lehman. Not only a new kid by Friday, so it's five days, you can also have his sequels. You can have a new teenager by Friday. (laughs) You can have a new you by Friday. These are all different books that he's written. Uh, and he has a, you have a new husband by Friday. So I don't know that the new wife has come out yet. It might be by Sunday, maybe. Um, oh, sorry about that. It's more complicated. But this kind of thing, it was interesting reading the, the responses of people who have read the books. And they're not happy with this. It's all behavior modification. And it's some strange stuff that he tells parents to do with their kids. Uh, Even locking them out of the house. Um, Just leave them in a store if they start in a tantrum. Just leave the store. That's that's not my 18-year-old doing a tantrum. That's my one-year-old. It's just some strange stuff. And the people are saying, I don't know about all of this, this kind of thing. You have a new kid... Uh, yeah, it won't be your kid. It'll be taken away. (laughs) All right, we're going to look at these uh, key elements here in your notes. So the first one we want to look at is sin and guilt. Every single day since Genesis chapter 3, man has been born a sinner by nature. Uh, We're in the first Adam. We're under the law of sin. And so I put there in your notes, sin. What is sin? Well, technically, it's missing the mark. 1 John 3, 4, sin is lawlessness. You're not keeping God's law by omission or commission. Right? What you do or don't do, you're missing the mark. And the shorter catechism, some of you maybe have catechized your, your children, what is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So sin, and I took this from the ESV study Bible, sin is anything, whether in thoughts, actions, or attitudes, that does not express or conform to the holy character of God in his moral law. So when we sin, we're saying, God, this is what you say to do or not do, but I want and I think. Soon as you go down that path, you derail. I don't want what God wants. I want to think differently than God thinks, and I'm going to go my path, not his. So it's rejecting God's holy character, but it's missing the mark of his his word. Now, whenever we sin, whenever we sin omission, commission, there is guilt. It doesn't matter if you feel it. Guilt is a fact. It's a legal liability to punishment, culpability to punishment. And this is where we get into trouble because of Freud. You know, he got into this false guilt. 
Uh, false guilt, anything your parents or religion told you was right or wrong, that's all false guilt because we're just animals because he built on Darwin's theories. Well, according to God, when we sin, we're guilty. And it's a fact, and I put it there on this, I think, page two of your notes, we must never minimize the fact of guilt. So if I'm going 55 in a 35-mile-per-hour zone, I might feel really good. And when the police pull me over, I could argue I didn't feel bad. I didn't feel like I was speeding. Uh, others have been going a lot faster than me. You can do all the rationalization, all the kind of... But you know what? The fact is, here's the law. You broke the law. There's a ticket. That's how we have to think about guilt. You break God's law... There is guilt. It's a fact. Now, we often have feelings that we feel bad about what we did. But don't think because you have feelings or don't have feelings, that's guilt. Guilt is a fact. Feelings often come from that. Sometimes they're called shame. In the Bible, we use the word shame at times. So don't minimize it when people say, I feel guilty or I feel bad about something. We ought to be asking them, so what have you done? And tomorrow, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. We can exceed God's law. We can actually have things that God doesn't say are wrong, and we believe they're wrong, and if we sin against what we believe is wrong, it is sin, even though the Scripture doesn't say it's sinful. See, if I really believe it's sinful to do anything but homeschool, and I, and let's say I choose not to homeschool, I'm sinning. Because I have a law now in my conscience that supersedes God's law. And this is where you get into the weaker, stronger consciences in Romans 14, where people eating meat offered to idols. So we're going to discuss that a little bit more tomorrow. But don't minimize that. When someone says they feel bad, well, what have you done? Or what aren't you doing that you think you should be doing? Explore that to find out what standards, what laws are they breaking? God's law or breaking God's law by adding more laws. So it, it's a fact. Now, the conscience is a warning light. I'm, I'm moving quick because there's some major topics at the end here on repentance and forgiveness and replacement. And these should be common knowledge to most of you, but those we counsel, it may not be common knowledge. So sin and guilt. Conscience is like a warning uh, detector on your car, like a light that goes off that says, oh, you've done something wrong. The conscience is actually a gift of God to us. It helps us. Uh, think there's something right or wrong. It's like a moral uh, light uh, law uh, that he's placed in our hearts in Romans 2.15. Everyone has a conscience. Now you can sear it. You can have a clean conscience, but everyone has a conscience. And that's God's gift. It's God's ally to our souls is the conscience. Now what is Satan's ally? The flesh. The sinful flesh is his ally. But to God, God's ally to us is the conscience. It's a gift. And it's a warning light. It means to be made aware of right or wrong. It means literally to say together with. But it, 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 something's not right. Or I'm, I'm, I better not do that. that. The conscience. So we need to have a good and clear conscience. Now, the thing about consciences is they should not be your guide. They're your guard. A conscience is a guard. It's not a guide. The guide is Scripture. Because our consciences have been infected with sin. That's why we can't trust our conscience. Because sometimes we'll think what's right is wrong and what's wrong is right. So we have to inform our conscience biblically. But the more biblically informed our conscience is, the better it works. 
and it can help us to avoid temptation and giving in to temptation. So it's a warning light. And what happens today in our culture with this issue of a warning light is we don't like it. You don't like driving a car with the light on. Check engine light. I don't like seeing that. So you can get some black tape, electrical tape, and you can just put it right over it. No, I don't see it. That's like using meds. Medication today often is trying to mask this conscience. I feel bad. Well, you know what? Take these drugs and you won't feel anything. You won't feel so bad. I feel so bad I can't sleep. Well, here's some medications to help you sleep at night. I'm not all against medications, but why are people, why is it so common? It's because people have guilt. Their conscience troubles them. So how do we deal with our conscience? Many times you can get into desensitization therapy where you just keep doing what you feel bad about before you, and, be, and before long you won't feel bad about it, which is called searing your conscience. So we ought to have a good, clear conscience. In 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul writes Timothy, uh, and the Lord through him tells Timothy to have a good conscience. It's one of our goals. Uh, to, uh, instruction is out of love, and it has a clean, clear conscience. So within Scripture, there are seared consciences. First Timothy 4, verse 2. That's sinning against what you know is right or wrong. You just keep doing what's wrong over and over again. You can sear your conscience. You can have an overactive conscience. You have so exceeded God's word with more laws... They tend to be weak in the faith, as Romans chapter 14 talks about them. And then a clean and clear conscience in 1 Timothy 1 through 5. Some of the Puritans did a lot of work on the conscience. Uh, William Ames and William Perkins uh, did quite a bit of work in uh, examining the conscience, uh, much more than uh, we've done today as far as work and writing on that. Now we're going to go to, so what do we do? Our conscience tells us something we've done wrong. Now confession, repentance, faith. The only, the true answer, how do I deal with the conscience that is bothering me? Then I need to confess. It's actually a repentant confession. To say the same thing that God says about it and to turn from it. And so you have repent, literally, a change of mind. Uh, the, uh, change of mind isn't just, I'm going to think differently about it. It's actually a, a whole inward change that leads to an outward reform. So it's a change within of direction. So here was the sin. Here's what pleases Christ. I'm going to do a 180. If you want recovery movement, you do a 360 and you go back the way you were. A recovery. 180 is repentance turn from sin, and by faith, I'm going to go towards Christ. So that's what you need in your minds and practice ourselves, but also as we counsel people. So many of the things of, I just want to stop the sin, which is very common in support groups. I just want to stop the sin. I want to stop drinking. I want to stop using drugs. I want to stop looking at porn. I want to stop the sin is a 90-degree turn. A 180 is I want to replace it. God doesn't teach us to break habits. He teaches us to replace them. And it's something that so many believers are, pray for me that I can stop something. Well, how about replace it? Which is repentance, turning from and turning towards. It's a, a prerequisite for Conversion. If you don't repent, you can't be saved. So Jesus' first message that he was going around the land speaking was repent and believe. Turn from self and sin and trust in Christ. It's absolutely necessary for conversion to be a believer. And it's not a one-time act. Uh, Thomas Watson, P. 
Puritan pastor said, repentance is a lifestyle of a Christian. We're always turning from sin and turning by faith to Christ and pursuing him. It's just an ongoing all day. You know, we usually say, have you believed in Jesus? And you go, oh, I believed in him. When was I? Eight? I believed in him. The, most of the time that the word believes used in the Gospels, it's in a verb, an ongoing verb. He, you, you must be believing in me, Jesus says. You must keep, keep coming to me. You must keep, it's an ongoing everyday thing, not a one time. I remember one time when I believed in Jesus. It's believing and keep believing. And the same would be here with repenting and growing in your faith. Some elements of repentance. You, and I, I am going rather quickly because we're going to get land a little deeper on a couple of these other issues. But here are some elements of true repentance on the bottom of page 3, at least of uh, the notes I have here. There has to be a knowledge, a knowledge of sin, what I've done wrong, and a knowledge of faith of Christ and what I should be doing in its place. There has to be a comprehension. Remember, cognition is very important to know right doctrine. Then a confessing, to say the same thing God says about it, but a repentant confession. And then choosing a willful resolve to leave the sin and pursue the Savior. Let's turn to Jeremiah 2.13, and we can see something similar to this of uh, Israel was having a very difficult time. They were trusting in idols. They were trusting in other nations. In chapter 2, starting at verse 12, the Lord says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So how many evils have they done? Two. The first one leads to the second one. The first one would be drinking at the fountain of living waters, following Christ. Christ was the rock that Israel drank from. Remember 1 Corinthians 10 says the rock that Israel drank from was Christ. So leave Christ, and what will you do? The second evil. Hewed out cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. You will pursue idolatry or other nations. Egypt and Assyria were being spoken of in that chapter. So you can see, if I'm just trying to stop drinking at the broken cisterns, whether it be drugs, alcohol, sex, uh, and gather together with others who say, yeah, I got that problem too, yeah, I got that problem. So last week, how many times did you drink at that cistern? Uh, you know, it was, not, it was better last week uh, than it's been before. Okay, and they all talk about stop drinking at the cisterns. It's going to be whack-a-mole time because that, that, another cistern will pop up and another one and another one. They're trying to stop the second evil without dealing with the first evil. Are you with me there? So anytime someone's going, I want to stop this sin, let's talk about Christ going to him, finding our fulfillment, contentment in him. Now, yes, make no provision for your flesh. This is Romans 13, 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for your flesh to fulfill it in its lust thereof. So I'm really all over this thing that when I'm counseling someone, we are hot and heavy going towards Jesus. The first, so we're not committing the first evil. Because if that's committed, you'll be at the second one for sure. So our, my assignments, my homework, when the first thing I'm asking, because I have them on a regular diet of reading and studying the attributes of God. I want them to get to know their God. I mean, you don't want to trust in someone you don't know. So you've got to get to know our God. 
So my first question, when I come back together for homework to go over that with uh, people that I'm counseling, is so tell me what you learned last week about God's mercy or whatever attribute it was, God's goodness. Tell me what you learned last week about God's goodness and then you answered those questions on how it affected you and the issue you're dealing with. Rather than, first thing out of, was last week, did you give in to pornography? Did you look at something you shouldn't have looked at? You follow that? You go, well, I, I really studied God's omnipresence, and boy, did that help me through the week. When I was tempted, I remember the Lord's right there with me. That's what you want, motivated out of a love for God. So keep that in mind, the Jeremiah 2.13 a counterpart, a counterpart, a similar passage in some ways is Ephesians, uh, Revelation chapter 2 with the church at Ephesus. They had left their first love. And so the solution is remember where you've fallen, repent, and return. So the elements of repentance. The two passages that are very helpful in help, helping individuals who you're not quite sure whether they're repentant or not, is 2 Corinthians 7, this top of page 5. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through, 9, I mean 9 through 11, is one of the best passages on what does repentance, true repentance, look like. Uh, you know, there's a zeal for what's right. You'll take whatever uh, consequences come your way. There's an anger that you've sinned against God. Those are elements of true repentance. And if you want to see a sort of an autobiography of repentance, Psalm 51, where King David describes his repentance. Also Psalm 32, if you wanted to add that in there, which was what his conscience was like when it wasn't, he wasn't dealing with sin in his life. Psalm 32. Very helpful in letting someone that is dealing with sin but may not really be broken over sin uh, to look at those passages and as homework. Now, some effects of true repentance. These are listed there on page, uh, what is it, four and five. Some of the different things. Restitution. That would be true if you stole something. If you stole something from someone, you need to return it. If you broke something, you ought to replace it. That's restitution. You have regret. There is a, an emotion uh, with this whole area of repentance. You don't have to have tears. You don't have to sob for a long time. But there ought to be a sorrow that you have offended a holy God. And if you've sinned against other people, there ought to be a sorrow there. It comes with some of the words used for repentance in the Old Testament and New Testament that has a sorrow about it. In 2 Corinthians 7, it says there's a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. And a godly sorrow leads to repentance. That's where we get this. There's this regret of, I'm, I'm truly sorry I did what I did against God and against you. You see it with the prodigal son. Uh, regret. You don't live in the past with that. Thankful that the Lord forgives, but there's a sorrow there. And there's a reconciliation where broken relationships, as much as depends on you, you go to the person, ask for forgiveness, and that broken relationship is mended if you've sinned against someone else. Reconciliation. Now, you'd like this to always take place is restoration. This is where the two who are now reconciled grow together. Uh, they hang out together. They grow together. And I put there in your notes, most often the immediate counsel for two people who are now reconciled is to build or restore their relationship. Obviously, there are exceptions to this principle. For example, in cases involving immorality, you don't want them to be hanging out with someone they were unfaithful with. Or abuse, so the abuser, just, you're putting them right back into a scenario possibly that could not, may not be good. 
So you have to really watch the restoration. Sometimes even in smaller churches where there's been, let's say, adultery within the church, it may be good if God's broken both of them and they've repented, they're reconciled, ask each other for forgiveness. It may be best, especially in smaller churches, that one of those couples seeks another church uh, to, to grow in their faith in. Rather, in that, rather than in the same church, because it can become a reality show. If the whole church knows about it, they're watching these people, seeing if they're hanging out again, and just this, we've got to get beyond this. So effects of true repentance. Now the area of forgiveness. This, I have seven books on my shelf right now on forgiveness, and they all take different views. There's not a five views book yet on forgiveness, but I I assume it will be coming. But forgiveness, one of the least understood topics and yet one of the most important topics for everyday Christian living. How do I deal with my sin? How do I deal with your sin or my sin against you? And then covering. talks about covering sin. What does that mean and when does that take place? So let's kind of jump into this one. The primary Greek verb translated to forgive means to send away or to release. Uh, When you sin against someone, the scripture talks about that as you now are a debtor, right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, right? There's this... um, when you come and say, listen, I sinned against you, would you please forgive me? Oh, absolutely. It's a releasing of, of what the sin has done there, at least horizontally. So that, uh, the issue of forgiveness. There's another word that's used primarily in the epistles. And you can see it, charizomai. And I, I put it in there in the notes because charis, some of you know that term, the Greek term, for Grace. It's talking about more of the manner in which you forgive. Forgive graciously. But in the Gospels, the main word used is to release a debt. And it it often refers to the methodology, how you go about it. Matthew 18, Luke 17, and other passages like that. So let me just read, uh, well, let's turn to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, we usually remember this or know this is a church restoration or church discipline passage. If your brother sins against you, go to tell him his fault alone between you and him. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he does not listen, that doesn't mean he just hears you, but hears and responds in the right way. And it goes through a whole process there. But I want to call your attention to a story that Jesus tells Peter. Verse 23. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him Have mercy or patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. You see the releasing? The releasing and forgiving of the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. So the difference here is he owes 15 bucks, and that first servant owed, you know, 20 million that's the kind of difference here we're dealing with. So this guy who owes 15 bucks, 100 denarii, seizing him, this guy begins to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant, this guy who owed 15 bucks, fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed And they went out and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt, millions, because, 
And I, I don't know if you mark in your Bible or not, but I would put a little line under that, because. I forgave you because you pleaded with me. Right? You pleaded with me. You should not, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant who also pleaded with you? I mean, that's the concept. He had, you should have had mercy on him as I've had mercy on you. And in anger, his mercy delivered, his master, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Well, I thought his debt was forgiven. His large debt is back. Really interesting, isn't it? This illustration. When we look at this topic of forgiveness, Chris Braun's, probably one of the best books that I've read out of the seven on my shelf on forgiveness, is Chris Braun's called Unpacking Forgiveness. He says, we need to take a look at how God forgives. And I put it there in your notes. Concerning God's forgiveness, a commitment by the one true God to pardon graciously those who repent and believe so that they are reconciled to him, although this commitment does not eliminate all consequences. And so if we're to forgive others just as God has forgiven us, then the definition of our forgiveness of others ought to mirror the definition of God's forgiveness of us. Therefore, Chris puts it this way, concerning our forgiveness, it's a commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. Now, when we take a look at God forgiving us, uh, there uh, in your notes on, uh, what page is it now? Six. Man needs forgiveness from God both before salvation and after salvation. The forgiveness needed before is called judicial, where God has been our judge. We've been under, actually, his condemnation. And now in Christ, he declares us righteous forever. He forgives us judicially, and now we're his children. He's no longer our judge in that sense of condemnation. When we go to passages like 1 John 1, 9, if we can, are confessing our sins, that's what it says. If we're confessing our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's talking about children of God. It was written to them. And so this forgiveness needed after salvation can be called parental forgiveness. There's judicial and parental. Because God is now our loving Father who wants to free us from hindrances to our communion that unconfessed sin brings. We don't lose the relationship with God. We're still his children, but we lose the communion. And I I mean, let's just think through this relationally. If you sin against a family member or a roommate, I mean, you just let them have it in your anger and you sin. Unedifying speech comes out of your mouth but you don't deal with it. Now you sit down, let's, uh, let's talk, or let's have a meal together. Um, I don't have to get remarried to my wife. Uh, not that kind of repentance and get uh, to be reconciled. But my sin has broken our communion. Do you follow that? It hasn't broken our relationship off that I have to get remarried, but it has affected our communion. And it's going to be awkward until I acknowledge my sin and ask for forgiveness. And she forgives me, and now we're reconciled, and we are built and restore. Now, when we ask for forgiveness, three things happen. It's the way God forgives us. He doesn't have amnesia. He doesn't say, what, would, what did Stuart just do? I forgot. Don't equate forgiveness with forgetting. Too many people do that. I still remember. Well, forgiveness is a promise. And there on page 7, there are three aspects of this promise. 
which means I will not remind you of that sin that you did against me. I'm not going to bring it up and get historical on you. I will not mention it to anyone else. I mean, these are general statements. There may be exceptions. If it was criminal, I'm going to have to mention it to the police. So, I mean, there would be some exceptions in some of these areas. But the general rule is, I'm not going to bring it up to you to hurt you. I'm not going to talk to other people about it. And number three, I will not allow my mind to keep dwelling on what you did. Because you've, you've admitted your sin, you've asked for forgiveness, and you're seeking to pursue, I mean, leave the sin and pursue what's right. That's what I'm going to be dwelling on and praying. Those are three very important elements of forgiveness. And we ought to be practicing those. Now let's get down here to um, who should we forgive? Let me see if I have this. Some passages in the Scripture clearly imply that we can only forgive those who ask for it. Like Luke 17, 3 and 4, if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he repents, forgive him. Matthew 18, very similar. Because both those servants acknowledged their debt, asked for mercy. One found it, the other did not. And there is one passage, really in particular, in Mark eleven twenty five, that seems to say you just forgive people. But actually, Mark eleven is talking about um, Israel refusing to acknowledge Christ, and it says, "And whenever you stand praying, keep forgiving." It's a, a present active imperative. You keep on forgiving. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Well, that's kind of interesting. They said, well, see, that teaches unconditional forgiveness. Just forgive people. But the last part of that verse says, if you don't, God won't forgive you. That's very conditional. When you really look at the beginning of that uh, verse, and whenever you stand praying, keep on forgiving that's the, the present active imperative. Keep on forgiving if you have anything, uh, anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. It's not a whole treatment on forgiveness. You'd have to look at what does all of Scripture say about forgiveness. Well, when someone sins against you, go to them. And we're talking mainly believers here. Unbelievers sin against you all the time. But believers... You have to be careful of that. There's verses on dealing with believers, and there's verses on how to deal with the lost. Don't mix those up. If your brother and sister in Christ slap you on one cheek, uh, turn the other cheek. That's not what that, that's talking about unbelievers. Believers, if someone sins against you, go talk with them alone. Because they've sinned against God, they've sinned against you. And you want to see it's not how thick your skin is or what you can handle. It's about their sanctification and God's glory. That's what should motivate us to deal with sin amongst each other. Is their good and God's glory. Right? Their growth and God's glory. So that's a... You don't want to build one... One whole book on my shelf is on this one verse. And he's building a whole big theology on that, just forgiving carte blanche, you know. But if you look at the verse before, you don't want to build a whole book or write a book or a whole treatment on the verse before it either. Where Jesus said, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And you go, well, you're kind of late on that one. There's a whole prosperity gospel built on that one. But we'd have to look at First John. You have to ask according to God's will. So what does all of Scripture teach about forgiveness? So who should we forgive? Scripture seems to uh, teach very clearly who God forgives and who we are to forgive are the repentant. Now, there is an internal attitude, an attitude of your heart that should always be there. 
And I want to start with that. It, it, we ought to love people unconditionally. We just love people. We love the lost. We love the saved. And that is always in motion, always loving people. You could call that a forgiving spirit. I, I'm willing to forgive. I'm always willing to forgive. I'm actively going towards you. That's the attitude of our heart. That was the king. It reflected God in Matthew 18. Now, we may not always be able to reconcile with every person, but our hearts should be very merciful because God has been merciful to us, right? That's why. So very active spirit, always willing to forgive, always seeking to love other people. Then you have the transaction of forgiveness, number two, which is conditional. Just as God, I'm reading here, just as God does not make his promise of pardon to people unless they repent, if you have God forgiving everyone, you've got universalism. You have a false teaching that God, no one's going to hell. God's going to save everyone. If God just forgives without people acknowledging their sin and repenting, you, you wouldn't have anyone going to hell. But that's not what God says. God promises pardon when people repent. Repent and believe, and your sins will be forgiven. Therefore, the transaction of forgiveness is conditional, and that we can only be fully reconciled to those who repent. Fully reconciled to those who repent. Those who refuse to repent of their sin are not forgiven by God. And for you to be forgiving them, why would you be doing something God doesn't do? Now, it doesn't mean you stop loving them. You stop loving them, you're going to get bitter. You keep loving them, praying for them, reaching out to them. So our part is to be reaching out, trying to resolve the issues. I know what happens is people go, whoa, 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 wait a minute, are you saying, because we'll read about this, you know, whether a killer uh, kills a, a lot of people, and then they say, you know, we forgive the guy for shooting all the people and killing him. We forgive him. Well, has he acknowledged he did wrong and was asking for it? No, we just forgive him. That's just not even patterned after Scripture. It's not how God forgives. God works in our hearts. We were broken over our sin. We, we ask God for forgiveness, and he's gracious and willing to forgive. His heart's always merciful. But it's conditional on us acknowledging our sin and asking for forgiveness. You say, well, what about Jesus on the cross? Okay, that was a prayer request. It was not a pronouncement. Jesus did not say to all those who are murdering him, I forgive you. He didn't say that. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That was a prayer request on that cross. And it was answered about 40 days later. When Peter's preaching to those same people who murdered Jesus in Acts chapter 2, he's preaching to them. This Jesus that was the Messiah, you murdered him, you killed him. And those religious leaders go, oh my goodness, God, God worked in their hearts. And they said, what can we do? And Peter said, repent and believe. And the scripture says, and many did. Right then, the, all the sin that they committed against the Son of Man and in crucifying him, betraying, I mean, not betraying him, but uh, forging, making up all kinds of things to get him crucified. All their sin was forgiven them. You'll see that time and time again. Stephen, when he's being stoned, being pelted with rocks, he looks up and sees Jesus. He says, lay this not to their account. Because he was being killed as an innocent man. Well, whose account was it laid to? Paul. Paul was in charge of that stoning. And you know, within a few days, that was a prayer request from Stephen to Jesus. And a few days hence, Paul is on his way 
to Damascus, and guess who shows up? The Lord does and converts Paul. And Paul's sin, uh, many sins, of persecuting the church as well as stoning of Stephen, was forgiven. See, it really helps us and makes sense of so much confusion out there. There's some pretty bizarre stuff of, um, in the area of forgiveness. In Christian counseling and even, um, well, mostly in Christian counseling, it's just forgive people, don't even talk to them about their sin. You're saying, this is not how the Scripture deals with it. Have a heart willing to forgive. So if a group of people who... Um, were the survivors of individuals shot by an individual, well, what they ought to say to that criminal is, we are so willing to forgive you. We love you. We're going to reach out to you. We're so willing to forgive you because that's how our God is with us. And if that person, criminal, acknowledges his sin and asks for forgiveness, absolutely we forgive you. Then there's reconciliation. But until then, it's to say, I forgive you to someone who's not even acknowledging their sin is not patterned after Scripture. It's not patterned after God or God, how he teaches us. So you, it's a lot of things there when you're dealing with covering. Uh, at the bottom there of the page, other issues related to whom we forgive. Confronting versus covering. You know, I, for the longest time, I was teaching, which is very common today, one of the most common teachings is cover a bunch of sin. Just overlook it. Ignore it. People sin around you. I'm, I'm not about believers sinning around you. Just cover it. You know, love covers a multitude of sins. First Peter 4, 8. Just love covers a multitude of sins. So just cover a bunch of them. Well, which ones do you cover and which ones don't you cover? Is there a list in the Bible, the ones you cover and ones you don't? No, no list. Anywhere. Now, in some of the books on my shelf, they have lists. But the Bible doesn't have any list. You go, hmm. So it sent me in a launch into Scripture of the various passages on covering. And I listed them there in your notes in the footnote. Psalm 32 is probably one of the most pronounced Uh, discussions there of covering. And let me just read this, and you can uh, hear what I was hearing. I mean, it's it's the Scripture, but it started to shed more light on this covering issue. David says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now let's think of the progression here. David sinned. He felt awful, right? Guilt and all of the effects of guilt. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. When was his transgression forgiven? When was David's transgression forgiven? When he confessed, right? He acknowledged his sin, is what he says here. I will confess my transgressions, and you forgave the iniquity of my heart. It requires acknowledgement and confession of sin. Then comes forgiveness, and guess when covering comes? Not at the beginning. It comes at the end. He says there, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, is hidden. It's done. It's over with. Covering isn't before sin is dealt with. Covering happens after sin is dealt with. When you forgive someone their sin, you hide it, you cover it, it's done. It comes from, the language comes from the atonement. 
in the Old Testament, kafar, to cover. When was that happen? When did that happen? When they came with appropriate sacrifices, admitted their sin, confessed their sins, their sins were forgiven, and the sin was atoned for, covered. It made all the sense in the world. Sin is a breach. Sin, by definition, is to separate. When we sin against each other, we sin against God. It brings a separation in our our communion. Well, how do I deal with that? I'll just cover it. No, 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 no. Covering sin, clear sin, doesn't go away. And you'll hear people say, there's a wall between us. It's one brick of sin been covered after another rather than dealt with. Deal with your sin biblically with a humble, gracious heart. Ask for forgiveness. And here would be a true confession. If I said something very, um, in an angry way, words that hurt my wife, if I go to my wife and say, honey, I've sinned against heaven, against God, and against you, uh, this was the sin I did. I look over, you know, in my mind. The sin was I said words that tore you down. Right. And the scripture says I should say words that build you up. I said words that tore you down. I should be saying words, please forgive me. Now on, I really want to focus on encouraging you and building you up with my words. Will you please forgive me? Do you know how easy it is to forgive people who do a biblical confession? When it's hard to forgive is when people say, hey, honey, I'm sorry. Sorry for what? Sorry that uh, you cried. I'm sorry you cried. I'm sorry it bothered you what I said. I'm sorry it's just become a mess and it's late at night. Late at night is not the time to really try to resolve things. More sin happens usually late at night. It's, you say, well, sun, you know, don't let the sun go down. It's already went down. <laughs> it's just better to say I love you. We'll work it through in the morning when we're thinking better. The more you keep pushing into the wee hours of the night, the worse it can get. Squeezing the toothpaste in the middle or at the end, now it's become divorce. You know, I mean, that's how serious it can get. Just, it, people are tired, they sin more. So confession, if we would say what God says about it, this is what was wrong, here's the scripture, this is what I need to do, it's right, will you please forgive me? Absolutely. Between Christians, that's the way. And you say, when, how do you, you know, when do you cover sin? At the end of the process. Then you hide it. It's, it's hidden. Uh, you don't bring it up to others. You don't bring it up to hurt them, and you choose not to dwell on it. Uh, there's teaching in Christian counseling about forgiving God. That's horrible. Actually, it's deplorable. It's blasphemy. It would infer that God sinned. You don't forgive God. There's, you don't forgive uh, uh, dead people. You don't talk to dead people and resolve things there. Um, things are already resolved with the dead person. They're either with the Lord in heaven or they're in hell, suffering for their sin for eternity. And there's nothing in the scripture about forgiving ourselves. Nothing. No teaching at all about that. We sin against God. We sin against others. Only one instance where we sin against our body, and that may refer to sexual transmitted diseases sexually transmitted diseases. Now, how should we forgive? Immediately, repeatedly, lavishly. There's the grace. Just grace. Because God has forgiven me insurmountable debt. Surely I'm not going to be choking the life out of you because you called me a name. But I do want to deal with this um, unedifying, sinful expression of your anger because it separates our communion. And let's resolve it for the glory of God. Then you have replacement. I've got a lot to take place here. This is all the way through the scriptures, and if you'd want to just underline one clear passage, Ephesians 4, 22 to 32. You see it there in the middle of the page on page 9. Ephesians 4, 22 to 32. It's putting off and putting on. When is a liar not a liar? It's not when he's not speaking lies. It's when he's always a truth teller. When is a thief not a thief? 
when he's now working with his hands in order to give and help those in need. It's very clear in that passage, putting off and replacing it by putting on from the heart out into behavior. And what, uh, one area I want to show here in the time I have left is mind renewal. It's so important, and this is where the battle hits, is what I'm thinking in my mind. Um, just all kinds of thoughts. So what do I do with them? And a lot of people relocate in their mind. Oh, man, that's troubling me. I'm going to think about shopping. You know, I'm going to think about going to Lowe's or you know, go somewhere else. I, 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 they relocate. Some people suppress their thoughts. But the Scripture says replace them, renew them. Take the topic matter and think biblically about them, about our thoughts. And a suggested passage, a pattern even, to do renewal is Philippians 4, all the way through. It's not just verses 6 and 7. If you tell someone who's anxious and worrying, go to Philippians 4, 6 and 7, you're you're chopping off the context. Actually, you're starting in the middle of a sentence in verse 6 and missing the first part of the sentence in verse 5. You're going to really miss it. It's not going to complete package of a pattern of helping someone with worry and anxiety. It starts in verses 4 and 5 about rejoice always in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Think about the Lord. Think about he has saved you. He's your God. And then it says, let your reasonableness be made to know to all men. Reasonableness. You know what a phobia is? It's irrational and you avoid it. Let your reasonableness be made known to all men. And then it says, the Lord is near. The Lord's right at hand. You're right in his presence. Then it says, be anxious for nothing. You see, you're missing so much of the context of God. God typically isn't in the thoughts of those who worry. You hear a worrier or someone who's fearful, they're not saying, I wonder if God, I wonder if he's going to be, I wonder if God, God's not in their thoughts. So it's bringing God into their thoughts. Be aware of him. Then right praying in verses 6 and 7. Right thinking, verse 8. Things of true, honest, right, pure, lovely, good report, virtuous, and praiseworthy. And then right practice, uh, where Paul says, the things you've learned, heard, received, and seen in me, these things practice. Do them. And the God of peace will be with you. It's all about peace. Peace of mind, peace, God of peace. You say, well, okay, how would you work that through? Well, here's a worksheet, and you can get this online uh, on 180 counseling, these worksheets, uh, both vacant, I mean uh, blank, and filled in. But I just wanted to show you how practical God's Word can be. So here's a person that was uh, fearful, so fearful. uh, It was a a woman, uh, an elder's wife, who... Uh, was not going to go see her third son graduate from a school over in England, and they lived in a country surrounded by water, and there's no way to get over to England except they fly. And she said, I'm not going to see him graduate. And her thought up there, uh, I don't know if you can see it up there, the door is going to fly open and I'm going to be sucked out. Boy, that's not a good thought. I mean, that's kind of a, I mean... I'm sitting there at this, it was a cookout, and she's going on and on, I mean, very loud about, I'm not flying, and the other ladies were saying, do you know how rare that is? That was before planes go missing, but just, you know how rare that is for a door to open up and people get sucked out? She says, it doesn't matter, and I'm, I'm chuckling to myself, not at her worry, but you know where I want to sit when I get on a plane? I want the exit row more leg room, and if I can get by the door, if it's an overseas flight, I can actually lay, you know, get, try to get some sleep. So that, that, that's her worst nightmare, would be next to the door on a plane. So I, let's just say this lady says, I want help with my fearful thoughts, my fears and, and whatnot. Well, she lusts, she's lusting for safety and security and certainty. I mean, she's definitely lusting for that. God apparently is in her thoughts at sea level, but not at 30,000 feet. 
And she's not going to be in control. She wants to be in control. You can hear some of the heart issues going on here. I want control. I want safety, security. Now, response-wise, if I, she said, okay, I really want to work through this. All right, let's just uh, first think through this. Be aware of the Lord. I rejoice in you, Lord, knowing that you're nearness to me right now. That's just verse uh, 4 and 5. You promise to never leave or forsake me. Right? Speak truth, God's word. You see all that's going on in this situation. You are my father. You're able to do in and through this situation more than I can think or imagine as I submit to walk in your ways. What can she pray? Lord, please forgive me for my fear and presuming the worst in this situation. Please help me to not be paralyzed with fear and have a willingness to go see my son graduate. She's talking about the, the key topics rather than relocating and just thinking about shopping at the you know, the local department store. And he's in control. She's not. That's what she can pray. And you think, well, what does the Scripture say? We need to go to the Scripture to find out what does God say about flying on a plane and being sucked out, the door opening up. Now, Paul prayed for open doors four times. (laughs) I wouldn't take her there to that. That would be a wrong context. He was actually praying for open opportunities to witness. But, um, so the, the Bible doesn't have anything specifically about flying on planes, doors opening up on planes, or sons graduating from a university. That's why people think the Bible's not relevant. Oh, yes, it is. The topics in that thought are in the Bible. For example, fear versus trust are in the Bible. Uh, the fact that I can't do what's loving. Well, the Bible talks about sacrificial love. Death. What happens when you get sucked out at 30,000 feet? Well, you die. Well, the Bible talks about death. To her, that would be the end. Well, and absent in the body, present with the Lord. I figure you're halfway to heaven at 30,000 feet. I mean, you, you immediately you're in the presence of the Lord. Self-focus versus love. She's very self-focused. Most fearful people are. Very self-oriented, protecting themselves. Control. Seeking to control versus God is in control. She doesn't think God is good. God's only good to her when she's on, the, you know, on her feet on sea level. Apparently he's not good uh, when she gets in a plane. Uh, all the different attributes of God are going to be affected here in her thinking. And then just facts. Be reasonable about flying. I mean, she's just not even being reasonable. So here would be a new redeemed thought. And I'm going to be hurrying up here because I need to to end. This, instead of thinking and talking to herself with the listening to herself of fear, this is what she should say. God, and this is with all the scriptures about all those topics. God, because you are sovereign over all, including my life, health, safety, and longevity. I mean, my days are numbered. And I am in Christ as a new man and a child of yours. I will love and trust you by flying over with my husband to love my son and see him graduate. I will find comfort and a refuge in who you are and in your promises concerning your presence, your care, your grace in time of need, the hope of heaven, your protection, and your wisdom. If you should ordain, because there was trouble in her thought, right? Getting the door opening up and getting sucked out. If you should ordain any trouble, or even my death, I will be sustained by your grace and even transported into your presence. That's taking the thoughts in that, I mean the actual topics in the thought, going to the scriptures, let's talk to ourselves with truth about everything, don't relocate or suppress You see how practical God's word addresses all of the subject matter. So what can she do? Buy a ticket. Round trip. Pray with others. She can make flashcards, right? That new thought, old thought on one side, new thought on the the other. Ask the church to pray for her. Tell her son that she's coming when she gets over there. If she doesn't have to get right back, plan a vacation with her husband and her son. Let him show them around the British Isles there in England. I mean, practice. So awareness of God and his goodness. Pray right. 
think right, and then practice. Do what God's Word says to do. If this lady would work at that thought and many more like it, within three to four months of working at this, with the Spirit of God, dealing with her heart issues out into her behavior, she'll be a different woman. She'll just be a different woman because her fears are in a lot of areas. It's not just in flying. And she's becoming a woman of faith rather than living with weak faith or little faith or unbelief. So there's all these key elements in the change process. And just walking through those with people that you minister and counsel, it doesn't happen in one time. Don't try to do all of that in one session. I'm looking at probably two months to three months of working through issues that they, bring, that they brought in, working them through these areas, repentance, confession, forgiveness, replacement, renewing their mind, Average is three to four months with a believer who's, who wants to change and, and was willing to do what is needed. And just wonderful to see lives transformed by God's grace. And some of you can attest to that. Some of you have shared that others ministered to you God's word, and that was the process of change. 